Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, the place where we keep you informed about emerging technologies, innovation, and global trends that are changing the world. I'm your host, Nikisa Meoza, and with me always, Mike Grandinetti. We're happy to be here today. There's a lot to cover, so let's get into it. Mike, I'm super excited to talk about China. Uh, I think we touched on it a number of episodes before, and there was a lot to get into there, so I just want to go back to it. Uh, and, you know, when we think about China lately, it's, it's, uh, we're seeing them in the news. It's about trade wars and tariffs. And there's a lot of tech activity and a lot of uh, um, disruption and ripples that are being created across a number of different markets. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. And again, China is an incredibly rich subject as we think about innovation and disruptive innovation. And I think that from what I've seen, uh, a lot of executives I talk to have a very obsolete mental model about what China is and what China isn't. And I really think it's important. And what I'd like to do over the course of this discussion is help our listeners reframe their mental models around China. So you're referring to this idea that China, historically, we've thought of them as, you know, they go out there, they're copying what we did here. What do we, what do you get? Let's get into that mental model and reframing it. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think the, the, you know, the Belief around China, the current belief is that what they're really good at is reverse engineering, fast following, Mm -hmm. you know, taking technology and manufacturing it at low cost and being able to get it to markets very, very efficiently through supply chain. Okay. Okay. And most of the times the word innovation has just not been a phrase that's been associated with China. Okay. Yep. And I think that anybody that believes that is still the case is um, very much exposed to being disrupted by what's coming out of China. Why do you think that is? I mean, what, what has happened in China that has leapfrogged or that, you know, is leapfrogging that concept or moving beyond that concept that we need to reframe our whole way of looking at it? It's a great question, Nakiso, and it's really going to require, you know, a number of different um, dimensions to cover in order to really help unpack this in a way that's that's going to help our listeners. So, Excellent. So, you know, at the, at the very highest level, President Xi is without question the supreme leader of China. Um, and he is taking a, an extremely long-term strategic view, right? He really, in many ways, uh, has, has articulated his vision for China to be technologically superior to the rest of the world. So in many ways, we are in a technological arms race or technological race, not that different than the Cold War, okay. but but being played out not in, you know, not on the battlefield, but being played out in software development houses and laboratories, if you will. So this is a government effort. This is completely manufactured to drive this new frontier for China? It is a government effort first and foremost. So okay. there's certainly wow. a very strong top-down element. And, and I liken it very much to what happened in the 1980s when we had Japan mm-hmm. peaking as a manufacturing powerhouse, they had a very powerful agency called MIDI, the Ministry of Industry, Trade, and Innovation. Huh. And, you know, but they were much more about strategic industries like auto manufacturing and consumer electronics manufacturing. Startups were not in their consciousness, but okay. in China, Startups are very much an important part. So this is really Japan and MIDI on steroids. So this explains the a sudden explosion, right, of all of these startups and the amount of investment. I know we'll talk about the VC influence at some point, but so you're saying that essentially all of this activity and the fact that the startup economy is so rich is because it's really been driven at a much higher governmental policy level 
Uh, that, that, that is, is, is that the essence of it? Well, I mean, that's certainly an accelerator, right? That's, that's okay. sort of the thing that I think has captured the nation's attention. And as we've spoken about in prior episodes, right, we've talked about creating a fertile culture for innovation at the company level. Mm-hmm. What China is doing is they're creating a fertile culture for innovation at the country level. Wow. Okay. And let me tell you, when, when a country decides with the, with, the, with the economic might of China and the, the raw willpower of the party, um, when they decide they're going to do something, they're going to do it full stop. And so they've really done that. So let me, let me explain a few things that have happened, right? Yeah. So, so just like in the United States, when Bill Gates or Steve Jobs were sort of two of the early celebrated entrepreneurs... Mm-hmm. And they became very symbolic role models for a new generation of entrepreneurs. Or Hewlett Packard, right? Even Steve Jobs would yeah. say Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard were his role models. In in China, we have Jack Ma. And Jack Ma, I'm sure most people know, is the founder and the CEO of Alibaba. Uh, and he's Alibaba, become a very right. powerful figure in Japan. But I've seen this all around the world, whether it be Gil Shwed as the CEO of Checkpoint mm-hmm. in Israel, or you name the country. Um what happens is the populace looks up at this individual and said, wow, this is something that if one of my fellow country people can do this, then I can do this. And so, you know, there's this remarkable um, mirror now that is being reflected back at the Chinese people, which is, you know, we want to be entrepreneurs. So, and you're saying that this has moved beyond the garage, you know, the garage group coding in, in mom's garage, right? Because, uh, it sounds to me like you're saying that the, there's just much more involvement and engagement, right? Because of the expanding economy in China, the the, the move in the social social class over there. Uh, you know, what what have been some of the things that have enabled these startups to really accelerate at the pace that you that you're talking about? Well, one is you know they've they've been taught entrepreneurship in, in some of the top U.S. schools. <laughs> Okay. okay, or they've been taught science in right. some of the best U.S. schools. And as an example, the founder of Didi, yep, one of the very first companies to take on an American heavyweight, yep, and win hands down. Okay, is a woman who was educated at Harvard, who spent twelve years at Goldman Sachs, um, and so she was able to very quickly keep pace with Uber's founder Travis yep. Kalanick in yep. terms of raising capital. Interesting. You've got the founder, Lijon of Xiaomi, who um, went to school in the United States and, you know, brought back with him the experience, along with his management team, of being educated in some of the top U.S. universities. And so one is they've had a head start and, you know, they've, they've traveled the world. They've seen the best that Western technology companies and Western apps have to offer. So the models are there. The models are there. Yeah. And then there's no question that the capital pools are huge. And so it used yeah. to be just 10 years ago that the majority, the vast majority of venture capital was invested in the United States. Roughly mm-hmm. 95% of all venture capital was invested in the United States. Today... 45% of all venture capital is invested in the United States. Wow. And 45% of venture capital is invested in China. So the Chinese venture capital industry has exploded out of the gate. So one, we have some, you know, U.S. affiliates, Sequoia, a, you know, just a rock star Silicon Valley-based yep, VC yep. firm, but, you know, Sequoia, China, um, 
RRE Ventures. So uh, Jim Robinson, RRE Ventures had been a spin out of Amex. And, you know, so you've got a variety of successful venture capital firms. Matrix Partners started here in Boston, right? Very successful. But you've also got now some China-led venture capital firms. Maybe the most noteworthy is Sina Ventures. Now, Sina Ventures is the largest venture capital firm in China. It's headed by a, a luminary known as Kai-Fu Lee, who had been the head of Google China. Okay. Did and, not know that. And is a world-class artificial intelligence expert. And very much a very strong believer in the creation of a new world order where China is not answering to anybody. There's a second major Chinese venture capital firm called DCM Ventures. And one of the founders is a VC named Hurst Lin, who we'll right. be talking about in a future episode about a panel I'll be moderating at MIT where Hearst will be coming in from China. Hearst was educated at Dartmouth as an undergraduate and at Stanford as an MBA. Uh, and he was named one of the top Chinese venture capitalists and VC of the year. So they're being educated in the States right. and they have access to massive pools of capital. And part of what's happened is um, the Chinese government has created policies that have made it harder to speculate in things like real estate and those capital flows have moved into venture capital. Well, wow. so basically people that are, you know, affluent and need to park their money somewhere uh, now almost really have no choice but to think about, you know, what's happening in the local economy and, and, and you know, and to put their money with, within those VCs or companies that they, you know, it, it's basically like an invest in China uh, operation. That's right. And to take that one step further, we now have this brand new market bourse called mm -hmm. Star. Star is the Chinese equivalent of the NASDAQ. And Star just debuted at the end of July, and they floated the first 25 Chinese companies on the Star market. Wow. Um, and what makes Star a little bit unique in China is unlike the Shanghai and the Shenzhen business, uh, you know, uh, stock exchanges. Exchanges, yep. Uh, you don't need any government approval for you to float yourself because there were some very, very rigorous standards for Chinese companies to, you know, to publicly list on the Shanghai Exchange. Those standards have been completely wiped away on Star. So there's no doubt that China is trying to keep the technology and the capital behind the technology close to home. So all of these different sort of finance-oriented uh, policy decisions have had a huge effect on so what's happening. I mean, there's a lot of risk associated with getting rid of the, some of those policies, obviously. But but you're saying that, it, you know, it, in terms of how it's helping to accelerate what's happening there, it far weight outweighs uh, the downside, right? Just letting everybody who wants to list, list and get that capital in as fast as possible. There's no question that there's a lot of risk, right? And obviously we have a lot of, uh, you know, Securities Exchange Commission mm -hmm. laws about protecting U.S. investors from scams. And yep. of course, re recently we've seen the coin offerings, right? And, and it, it's very hard. That. It's very hard for regulators to keep up with all the, the changes. But if China wants to be a global powerhouse and you know, the investors, the individual investors are willing to take those risks, you know, it's another way of putting capital into the next generation of growth companies in China. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you you, know, you talk about the coin offerings. I mean, I think about Binance as an exchange, biggest biggest exchange by far right now uh, from a global standpoint, and uh, you know Chinese run and those guys. I mean, they are outperforming a lot of the other exchanges, and the majority of people who are investing are doing it uh, on Binance. Uh, you know, the validity of listing any coin happens when you land yourself on Binance more than any other exchange. So, 
It's it's very interesting that um, it's happening across a number of industries. Uh, I, I know we're going to tee up some others too, but I would be remiss if I didn't take a break on behalf of our sponsors and advertisers. We'll be right back. This week's topics are brought to you by Rutgers University and its leading disruptive innovation certificate program. At Rutgers, we bring together industry thought leaders and top academic faculty to help you develop your understanding of a range of topics and skills to proficiently navigate the turbulent environment and emerge with a competitive advantage. For more information and to enroll in the leading disruptive innovation program, visit li.rutgers.edu. This is just fascinating. Um, I, I didn't realize the extent to which there's so much uh, of it that's been driven by the, the flexible policies or ideas that the government is actually supporting. Right. And let me just add one uh, last, I think, very interesting point to, mm -hmm. you know, the the formation of Chinese capital pools and how it's being invested. So I've spent a lot of time in Tel Aviv, right? Okay. And, and the country of Israel has long been known as Startup Nation. Yes. It's a very well-deserved, um, you know, brand name for great, the country. Great innovation coming out of Israel. Great innovation. Yeah. And, it, and as the U.S. has you know, adopted much stronger immigration standards um, as the U.S. has closed off more and more of our technology to China. Uh, the Chinese are not, you know, they're not shy. And what I'm seeing, um, and it's it's quite striking, is the number of Chinese that are in Israel. So if I go visit with some of my Chinese venture capital investors, mm -hmm. I will see delegations from Baidu and Alibaba and Tencent. And Interesting. A lot of these companies who are now investing in Israeli venture capital funds as limited partners, who are taking a very, very deep look into the portfolio companies of this Israeli venture capital funds, uh, who are acquiring uh, Israeli startups or licensing their technology and bringing it back to China. So China's done a great job of sort of avoiding what I'll call the U.S. sanctions. Right. Um, by, okay, if we can't uh, acquire and license U.S. tech companies, uh, let's go to Israel. And, and Israelis are very open to this, right? The, the Israeli venture capital community is, they're there to make a return on their investment. Right, so as long as the capital's coming in, they're a little bit more flexible with... Uh some of the the investment rules uh, is is that is that the the essence of it? Well, there there certainly you know even though we have been a long standing ally of Israel, right, and we've we've um, you know done an extraordinary amount to kind of uh, protect their sovereign interests in mm -hmm. a very hostile environment. Um, you know the the Israelis are very much you know providing sort of an open um, you know an open store to Chinese companies, and it's something that I think has raised eyebrows less than I would have expected. I've seen some very interesting articles in The Economist and, you know, one or two other publications, but it seems like the U.S. has been a bit caught flat-footed on this. Hmm. One would think with all of the rhetoric coming out of Washington today that, you know, with all of the support that the Trump administration has provided to Netanyahu and, and, and his times of political trouble, right. that we would maybe be, um, you know, from the bully pulpit encouraging not to be so open. Uh, but that hasn't happened yet. And so it's it's another very interesting potential flashpoint going forward. And are, are you concerned at all? I mean, obviously, the, the, the refrain from everyone is always uh, IP and we're losing our IP. And so we need to be much more protectionist and thinking about, you know, what in, uh, where we, we engage with the Chinese companies, how we're sharing uh, information with them. 
you know, if Israel, who historically has done this with the U.S. as well, I mean, the, those those graduates that are coming out of Israeli universities, they bring that that technology and talent here. You know, if we, if we, if we're not doing as much with with Israel, or if we're not participating in that process, is there a risk then that we we start becoming second fiddle for those IP uh, discussions and conversations and interests that might be coming out of Israel, and they go to China instead? Well, there's no question that the the relationships with uh, with a lot of these large Chinese strategics is is growing very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, you know, the United States has alienated a lot of uh, countries, a lot of leaders. So that's always a risk. There's no question about that. But but maybe, uh, you know, to, to kind of read between the lines of your question, I do have concern because one of the things that President Xi has made it clear is there's really no dividing line between technology and, and the military. Mm-hmm. And so any technology that winds up in the hands of the Chinese government is going to wind up in the hands of the Chinese military. Well, you know, which again, not to interrupt that point, but the, you know, the Israelis historically, a lot of their technology has come out of the investment coming out of the military, right? Similar to what we've done. Oh. The military drives a lot of the f- push to fund new ideas. That's exactly right. And probably more today in Israel than, than in America, right? Because, you know, the U.S. government is investing less and less in R&D right. than we were. We've really, since the 1980s, pushed more and more of that, that basic R&D into the private sector. Hmm. Um, but, of course, is Israel being sort of in a very unique geopolitical location, um, security is so critical. So a massive amount of cybersecurity technology, for example, has come out of the Israeli military. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is, and you know, this is something I think we need to think about, right? So Google owns DeepMind. Yep. DeepMind is probably one of the most advanced deep learning, uh, you know, technology research companies on the planet. And uh, Google is doing DeepMind research in China. Oh. And you know, and that's quite frankly somewhat startling to me because you know. Our friends from Google, under the leadership of Sergey Brin, abdicated China. Um, Sergey grew up in Russia Mm -hmm. at, you know, when Russia, you know, the prior time when it was a surveillance economy. And he understood what it was going to take to play in China. And what it was going to take to play in China is, you know, if there are dissidents that are posting things on Google, um, Google would be expected to very quickly provide information and and access to their, their records. Right. And and Sergey Brin said, not not on my watch. Right. I don't want to support that. We're probably one of the most heroic business yeah. decisions ever made that I can think of. Couldn't agree more. But now. Right. And by the way, Zuckerberg's had no problem playing by those <laughs> rules. And a lot of others have had no problem. Right. right. Very opportunistic. But now, you know, in many ways, it appears that Google is reversing itself. They're trying to figure out a way to get back into China. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, when you try to get back into China, part of it is trying to ingratiate yourself with the Chinese government because they're such a powerful force and regulating who's in, who's not in. And now they're doing, you know, deep neural network learning in China. And I've seen um, even even um, Peter Thiel, the legendary investor, yep. founder of PayPal yep. and, um, you know, just an absolute renaissance man when it comes to sort of having a worldview, you know, writing a very strong opinion piece in the New York Times about a week ago. Yeah about how dangerous this is. So, you know, we are really coming into a very interesting time, you know, and as we sit here today, of course, the uh, the protesters in Hong Kong have occupied the airport for the last 48 hours and hundreds and hundreds of flights have been canceled and there's an expected response from the Chinese government that could be coming any time now. Yeah, they were talking about that uh, even just this, this morning. 
exactly. Yeah. So, you know, so there's a lot going on here, right? And the question becomes, you know, where do we go from here? And, and I, I get the sense with, you know, the, the promised uh, $30 billion of tariffs that, uh, that have been levied against China just in the last couple of weeks and, and um, the Trump administration labeling China a currency manipulator that we're definitely getting into, uh, you know, ready for battle. Yeah, yeah. I don't see anybody easing off anytime soon. So why don't we take a break? Uh, and then when we come back, we'll pick it up again and uh, start talking about uh, some of the other topics that, uh, that are relevant for China. And we're back. So we touched on the waves of innovation in China. Uh, Mike, why don't you tell us about these? Uh, I, I'd really like to start with what was the first wave? I know that that probably included Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. Can you walk us through the first wave and then tell us what's coming next? That's great. So absolutely. The first wave has the acronym BAT. And, you know, each of these in many ways was sort of a substitute for a, an American type of app. So Baidu was the search engine that was filling the void when Google abdicated China. That's correct. So the Chinese okay. version of Google. Chinese version of Google. And and Baidu is probably the company out of the top three of these iconic first wave in, uh, innovators. That's falling behind. They're shrinking. Um, and, you know, they're not really able to put artificial intelligence to use in huh. a way that is useful for the increasingly sophisticated Chinese, you know, um, Consumer is is that a failure on the technology side, or is that more just the regulatory? What what's the reason? No, I for think that? it's really a failure on both the side of leadership and its inability to uh, you know to put this into place. Okay. Okay. Second name, of course, is something everybody's aware of, and it's called Alibaba. Now, Alibaba has become a global e-commerce powerhouse. Alibaba is a fifteen-year-old company, and you can imagine, right? Any fifteen-year-old company is going to start to show some signs of wear and tear. Right. And in a minute or two, we're going to get into a discussion about a next generation social e-commerce company that is beginning to disrupt Alibaba mm -hmm. that I, f I think our listeners will find very interesting. So just really quickly, frame for us Alibaba's big, you know, what's their core business? I mean, Alibaba clearly is an e-commerce application and, you know, just on what they call Singles Day in China, right? Just that one day where singles exchange gifts. Right there's roughly a trillion dollars of value being exchanged. Right, so they're more of the Amazon of the Chinese economy. They are. Now, they are in, in an incredible technological war, right? They're all, all of these Chinese companies are competing for more and more uh, engagement from users. So they're building a massive number of what are called mini apps. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Alibaba has become far more than e-commerce and you have Alipay, which is their version right. of a payment system. Yep. And they have Ant Financial, right? Mm -hmm. And Ant Financial is more of a, of a, you know, a, a FinTech yep. example. Yep. They've got thousands of mini apps, but they're ultimately known as an e-commerce company. Now, the third company out of that acronym, Tencent, Mm -hmm. is based in Shenzhen. And Tencent is most well-known for WeChat, um, but it's also one of the leading gaming companies in right, China. Right. And that's where about 60, 65% of all of its revenue comes from. And, and in my mind, Tencent is the most interesting companies out of the three. So if we think about WeChat, um, you know, WeChat started off its life in a very simple way 
as a messaging app. Right, they were trying to challenge the WhatsApp version, correct? Exactly. So right. they were challenging WhatsApp and a lot of these very basic messaging platforms. Mm -hmm. But WeChat was lucky enough to be led by a visionary CEO. And, and this is what is so ironic, Nikiso. Facebook generates 98% of its revenue through advertising. Yep. And of course, this is what got Facebook in trouble, right? They chose a revenue model that would lead them into the challenges they're now facing. Because even though we have expectations of data privacy in the U.S. or in the West, Facebook has repeatedly violated those promises and those expectations. Yeah, it's, it's clear they don't really care about your privacy that much, as they, long as they can yeah. make money from it. Yeah, and of course, they just had this landmark $5 billion fine, and, and they're, <laughs> they're trying to pivot, and we'll talk about that. But here's what's so ironic. WeChat, under the leadership of founder Alex Zhang, mm -hmm. um, talks about that he wanted to make WeChat the best friend of users in China. And so even though China is a surveillance economy, right. and app users don't expect even a shred of data privacy. Zhang said something very profound, right? You would never put an advertisement on the face of your best friend. So hmm. Zhang decided to go in a very different direction. And so WeChat evolved into this super app. Okay. And it became in many ways the operating system of the Chinese economy. I mean, I, I don't think there's a person in China that's not on WeChat. Yeah, and, and, and I just, you know, it's it's interesting because every time that I have friends who, uh, you know, travel between here and China, that is the principal mechanism that they use to communicate. It is how they function fundamentally. So, you know, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so it, it, WeChat has evolved into this mega app, okay? And so one of the most powerful components is WeChat Pay. Yeah. And yeah. it's become the banking system of China, right? China has become largely a cashless society. Right. So, so WeChat, for the most part, is mostly a, a you know, t tied to the, the payment that you're talking about, the payment platform. I mean, I don't think anybody carries a wallet, right? It's, every, it's all on the phone. It's right. all on this application. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, people of a certain generation. I mean, it wow. is something that is being used by the entire society. But, you know, it's, it's a classic e-commerce app. So you can shop mobile commerce mm -hmm. shopping. It's a payment app. You can order pretty much anything from food to groceries to movie tickets. You can, you know, you can uh, book a, uh, a table at a restaurant. You can pay your utility bills. Wow. Okay. And so the business model is essentially where they take a commission of every transaction. And with a billion plus active users, yeah. where people are making payments all day long, that is one extraordinary business model. Wow. So it turns out that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, sitting there now in the penalty uh, box with a dust cap <laughs> on is looking across the Pacific and saying, I'd like to be more like WeChat, right? So it's another example of how we talked earlier, China is not the fast follower anymore. In many ways, you know, they got it much more quickly. And so as we talked about, Right. Facebook is now launching Libra, yep, which yep. is a cryptocurrency platform. And there's been a tremendous amount of backlash. Well, and rightly so, right? I mean, who wants to trust a company that's already done what they've done with your data, 
Uh, they're clearly selling every, and that's that's been the argument, right? Most people, senators, uh, you know, Congress people, they're all concerned about this idea that if you give Facebook this much power, even if it's spun off as a separate not-for-profit entity, there's still just that reticence in it, and it's obviously it's because we've seen what they've done repeatedly. Absolutely, right. they have betrayed our trust repeatedly, as you yeah. said, and it couldn't imagine a worse time for them to try to be doing something this bold and this aggressive. So it leads into sort of the company that I want to highlight that is probably not a company that is well known to our Western listeners. And that company is called Puindodo. Now, Puindodo hmm. is translated into the Chinese into much more together. Interesting. And it's a very young company, but it's grown dramatically over just a few years. And it's essentially a mashup of Groupon, right? Or okay. bargain shopping, yep. of gaming right, the gamification of shopping and of social media. Now, the founder hmm. who, as we talked about in the prior episode, right, another person who was trained in a Western company, he had worked for Google China before he founded this company. He likens it to a mashup between Costco and Disneyland, which is a fascinating mashup. That can is. imagine pitching that to a venture capitalist <laughs> early on. But what happens is a shopper will identify a product or an item they want to purchase. Okay. And then they will start building a team of friends and family members and social contacts to join them in the pursuit of purchasing this product. And every time you add a new member to your shopping team, uh -huh. right, the, the volume discount kicks in and the price of that item begins to drop. That's a fantastic okay? model. And so unlike, unlike Amazon, where you compete against yourself, right? One minute you're looking at something and you go on hold and you come back and a minute later, the price has just gone up and the airlines certainly are famous. So it's actually using, you know, using the power of your social network to drive discounts, right? So everybody benefits. The second thing is huh. in order to drive impulse purchases and, and repeat visits, um, they include a lot of gamification, so they have these specials, these hourly specials, mm -hmm. cash rewards, lotteries, you know, lucky draws. And so here's a company that started in 2015. It is generating $300 million in revenue. It's got 300 million active users, monthly wow. active users that are shoppers. A million merchants are on the platform. Oh, wow. So it turns out they went public on the NASDAQ in 2018 and they've got a $25 billion valuation. Now, what's amazing is, right, we've seen a lot of broken IPOs. Yeah. We've seen everybody from um, Lyft and Uber yep. and Blue Apron well, and so many we companies. Work, uh, yeah. just this well, week. we work, we'll go this week, but you know, <laughs> so many broken IPOs where companies are trading below their offering price. Yeah. Pinduoduo has held its own. So who were the original investors? I know we, we, we're, we're diving into it, but uh, you, you talked about it earlier, uh, and we certainly touched on this offline, but who are the original investors that put money into this concept? And, you know, because you said, again, difficult for a VC to tell them it's a Costco meets Disney. How do you pitch that, right? So who, who put money in? Well, this is what's so interesting, right? So I really have a tremendous amount of respect for Tencent. And Tencent is very aggressive. They've got a significant venture capital operation set up in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. People following the news lately will see they, they've just made a huge uh, acquisition attempt of Universal Music, right? They're mm -hmm. really going big on content around music. So it turns out Tencent, the leaders of, uh, the owners of WeChat, yeah. 
um, have an 18.5% equity stake in Pinduoduo. Wow. And Pinduoduo actually has built its app on top of the WeChat platform. So in many ways, Tencent is bringing it to Alibaba, right? Because these two companies are locked in a titanic battle for the soul of the Chinese consumer. And so, you know, this is a unique business model, right? The way that Pinduoduo generates revenue today is it's really more pay for marketing services. So it's keywords and it's ad placements Mm -hmm. and some of those things. And of course, they're trying to evolve their model. But in many ways, Tencent is, you know, bringing this new firepower, this completely new approach. Um, And it's taking quite a bit of mind share away from Alibaba. So this is this is a fascinating thing to see, right? So we're now seeing the big Chinese companies beginning to get disrupted. And in this instance, it happened to be one of the iconic Chinese companies, Tencent, you know, investing in and hosting a new up-and-comer. And this new and up-and-comer, uh, uh, Pinduoduo, coming on very, very quickly. So it's it's almost like uh, future-proofing and uh, just disruption-proofing yourself, right? So it's a fantastic model. I think this whole notion of social commerce and how it's really exploded over there. I, I see the same remnants and uh, kind of the same ideas uh, going across to India, right? These markets that just have gobs of people. I mean, if you look at what happened with mobile banking and mobile payments and, and how it's helped uh, you know, uh, the non-industrialized com- countries, this is sort of the same thing, but this looks like the next wave that's really leveraging or taking advantage of a, a, a society that actually has the the, the cash and uh, the money to spend on this new paradigm. Absolutely. And as Steve Jobs said, if anybody's going to disrupt Apple, it's going to be Apple. And I think the 10 cent leadership like team that. is very sophisticated. And I think they, you know, they are playing the big open innovation game. They're making investments in Silicon Valley. They're making investments in Israel and they're making investments in China. Fantastic. Well, I got to say, Mike, that was absolutely incredible. Uh, Looking forward to continuing some of these conversations. Uh, Let's take a break and come back. This week's episode is brought to you by Q Mixers. Great spirits deserve spectacular mixers. Don't waste a good drink by mixing it with lousy tonics or ginger beers. With real ingredients like agave nectar, Peruvian quinine, and cayenne pepper, and absolutely no high fructose corn syrup, Q-Mixers make your drinks spectacular. And we're back. So, Mike, uh, unfortunately, we're getting close to that witching hour. Uh, so I like to end our conversations uh, with a segment called Three Things. And I, it's usually either the three things that you're thinking about, three things you read about in the news, or, you know, last three things, last three thoughts. Uh, That's me. great. And, and today I think it's going to be some of the things that I've recently read about that I think are, are uh, hopefully very interesting to our, our listeners. Perfect. So let's let's continue on the China trend. Okay. So we talked a lot about Tencent and Tencent again as the as the owners of WeChat, mm-hmm. um, an incredibly well managed and uh, sophisticated company with interest in a lot of different um, you know industries. So okay. Tencent is accumulating content, and they just announced that they're going to take a ten percent stake in the Universal Music Group, one of the largest music, uh, recorded music groups on the planet. Wow. And a group that includes the, you know, the, the, some of the biggest names in the industry, Taylor Swift, Drake, Lady Gaga, Kendrick Lamar. And it's an example of Tencent understanding the importance of content, right? Because you, the, the incredible ecosystem that they're building, content is king. Yep. And of course, Tencent is also competing with Netflix and others in China around video streaming. 
So this is an unusual example now of a Chinese company for the very first time buying a significant stake in a a world-class Western music company. Right. And so what we're going to see, I think, is there's going to be, um, we're going to see all of the Universal Music Group artists streaming, uh, you know, on well, Tencent. And right. so I think you're going to open up whole new, uh, you know, revenue streams for yep. some of these Western artists for the first time. And, you know, it's it's not the first time that Tencent has invested in music companies, and it's certainly not going to be the last. But it's another example that Chinese companies are not satisfied with just being the dominant player in China. They have truly global ambitions. And they're talking about four major Western recording artists here. So I just think that's an interesting thing that we should be keeping our eye on. No, that, that's, that's, uh, that's incredible. I, I can see a, uh, a Tencent Coachella happening somewhere. Uh, all right, fantastic. Hit me with number two. Yeah, and this one is certainly related to China. And this is, um, you know, in many ways, as we know, right, China is the largest auto market on the planet. Today. Mm-hmm. It used to be that North America had that had that distinction, but yep. with the rising Chinese middle class, they're now sort of the the most important market on the planet. And again, very much in line with what we talked about earlier around, you know, Chinese policy, um, China is instituting very, very strict measures around the adoption of electric vehicles. Okay. And so you're seeing all kinds of companies, including Ford and Volkswagen, tying up as one example with regard to, you know, the production of electric vehicles. Well, just this week, uh, two very interesting announcements, both the Volkswagen Group yep. and General Motors have made public statements saying that they're not going to even bother developing hybrid vehicles, right? Oh, hybrid wow. vehicles have been around for 20 years. The By far the most iconic hybrid vehicle is the Toyota Prius. Yep. And in many ways, the hybrid was meant to be a bridge between the world of the internal combustion engine and the world of electric by right. having, uh, you know, both an electric motor and a, a gas engine. Yep. Well, it turns out that um, both of these companies are saying they think that it's a waste of time and that they really want to, you know, they want to leapfrog. Wow, just going straight to go electric. Go straight huh? to electric. So wow. I think this is something that, you know, in many ways was motivated by what's happening in China. So I think that's, you know, again, there's a lot of companies with a lot of different perspectives on on how quickly people will adopt these clean vehicles. Right, right. But this is an example of leapfrogging that, you know, you don't normally expect from companies as conservative of, as Volkswagen as General Motors. But but also it's it's also leapfrogging all the concerns that a that a country as populous as China has around emissions. So it's a it's a smart play. Uh it's a win-win in in many ways. Absolutely. And China's really gotten religion on, you know, being green. Emissions, yeah. yeah. All right, last one. Well, the last one's just a fun one, right? And so, you know, uh, uh, pizza is America's favorite food. Love pizza. And what's interesting is, right, this is an example, broader example of how you don't have to be in the technology industry mm-hmm. to be disrupted. So recently, Domino's has been reporting declining sales, declining market cap, and it's the same trouble that has been, um, you know, undermining the performance of Pizza Hut and also of Papa John's. Wait, are we eating less pizza in America? Well, we're eating less pizza. Not that people are eating less food in America. That that would be sacrilegious, of course, (laughs) right? But what's happening, and this is what's so amazing about the world of the innovation economy and disruption there are no borders or boundaries anymore. So these food delivery apps from Seamless Grubhub mm-hmm. to DoorDash to Deliveroo to Uber Eats wow. have created access to pretty much anything we want to eat at any time. Right. 
And so pizza was always that fail-safe, the go-to. affordable, go-to food. When I'm hungry and Post I want something games, fast, yep, yep. I know I'm going to just call Domino's or I'm going <laughs> to call Pizza Hut and I'm going to have a pizza in my house in 30 minutes. Well, it turns out that they have a lot of competition now. And it's become so significant that Pizza Hut's shares are down already 15% just this year. <laughs> so the app economy, the digital economy, the innovation economy are coming for every company, low-tech, pizza makers, high-tech, you name it. No one is safe. No one is safe <laughs> from disruption, including Pizza Hut. Fantastic. Well, on that note, uh, thank you, Mike. Uh, thank you, listeners. We're looking forward to another episode next week. Uh, please look for us on disruptiveinnovationpodcast.com. Thank you and see you next week.